0: Let's pray. God, if uh, we were going to be honest, if our hearts were really in a right place in front of you, all we would have is gratitude. God, we would have hearts that are sad and sorry for the ways that we disobey you, and we would be so grateful, so filled with gratitude for the way that you continue to love us and what you've done for us in Jesus. So, God, thank you for the way that that song reminds us. And just pray now, God, that in this time that we have to look at your word, God, that you would be glorified, that we would understand how the history of your people does not have to be the same as our future. The mistakes that they made, we can learn and we can grow from as people, as churches, even as nations. And so, God, I just pray that in this time now, this is your time. It's not my time. It's the time that we get to have and, and to listen for you. And so, God, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that you would open our hearts to whatever you have. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we're talking about the 12 tribes of Israel today, and that's family. And I'm going to explain that more later on. So I thought I'd wear part of our Open Door family shirt. I've got Recovery Church on. Is there a whoop there? Yeah, okay, awesome. Here's the deal. We get to be family with Recovery Church, right? We get to be a part of their family. And it's one of the great things about being in the church and for the nation of Israel. It should have been one of the best parts about being who they were. But somehow they managed to just goof it up. And so we want to make sure that we look and that we learn. And uh, so we're stepping away from looking at individuals and we're going to look at a whole nation. And I got to tell you, some of you were here first service. I learned a huge, no, I was reminded of a huge lesson at first service. A huge lesson I was reminded of is this. Number one, you can't take a tough text and try to go too fast. That didn't go well for me. Got a, literally got a whole page ahead of myself. The second thing is I realized um, this really is God's time. This, this is God's time between he and, and you and I and all of us. And the reason we never leave God's word is because that's where our truth is. Right, I I can put together a message, but that doesn't matter nearly as much as what it is that God has, God's Word has for all of us. And so I'm going to slow down, which I didn't do at first service, which isn't always easy for me. And uh, for you note takers, you can probably be filled with gratitude over that one. So we're going to talk about the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel really is, as we meet them, they're one nation under God. They don't have that written down, but in terms of their identity, They understand that that's who they are. God has has heard their cries in Egypt. God is the one that brought the nation of Israel out of bondage. God brought them into the wilderness and it was supposed to be a quick trip and they ended up making it 40 years of wandering. But he fulfilled his promise. He brought them to the promised land. They should be filled with nothing but gratitude. But people being who they are, they, they kind of managed to goof it up. And so we're going to try to learn from the history, uh, not only what it applies to our nation, but for us as people, our relationships, our churches. Certainly we can see some of our country happening in what's going on with this passage about Israel as well. So it might feel like it's a land on the other side of the world, which it is, in a time a long, long time ago, which it was. But what we can learn from it is still relevant today, even though it was thousands of years ago. We're going to look at the nation of Israel here. God's people living as one united nation. But what they end up doing is they end up becoming a split kingdom because they brought disunity to what God had brought together. And that's something we've got to pay attention to because we can do the very same thing. And, and so let's not. Let's not as, as people, as couples, as families, as churches, as a nation. So I thought it might be helpful. Some of you uh, here were at, in Israel with Deidre and I a few years ago. Uh, you've got a little bit of a grasp of, of the size of the country. We're going to be talking about the very northern part of Israel and then Jerusalem. That's where all of this stuff takes place. But I thought, let, let's put it in perspective because not all of us have been there. Israel is in the news a lot. And usually it's in the news because somebody is attacking them. They're, they're fighting or something is going on. And so I thought, let's just get some perspective for size. The United States of America, and I wrote this number down, is 44,726% larger than the nation of Israel. We're huge. Israel is tiny. Let's break that down to something we can understand a little better. Israel is one-tenth the size of the state of Minnesota. If you took the northern part of uh, Minnesota that goes out over Lake Superior, going north of Duluth, and you dip into Superior National Forest a little bit, and then you go south of Duluth just a little, that's the nation of Israel. That's how big they are. All of this stuff, all of these wars, all of this stuff happens in that very, very small area. And we're going to be talking about 12 tribes. I'm going to explain who they are and how they got their names, but we'll get there in a minute. But it's important that you think of those 12 tribes, not as a disconnected uh, nation, not even as United States like we are in, the, in this country, but rather as a family. Because the truth is, the 12 tribes really all come from one large family, and when they're at their best, they have a good national family identity. So long before the 12 tribes were ever there, there was a, a history of infighting. All the way back in Egypt, they were fighting. They would fight with each other. They would fight with the Egyptians. They, would, they, they just were a quarrelsome people. And the Bible is really full of that history. They've also got a long history of disobedience. It doesn't seem to matter how many good things God gives to them. They always find a reason to disobey. They always find a reason to rebel. We have to stop for a moment and say, if this is them back here and, and we're all the way up here, what have we learned? Not much. We still disobey and we still rebel. It's called sin. 3,000 years have passed, and yet we're still disobedient and rebellious. So I talk about it being a family. Here's the family. It all started out in one household. This whole 12 tribes idea started out in the house of Jacob, whose family itself was divided. He had two wives, Rachel and Leah. And the problem was, Rachel was jealous of Leah, and Leah hated Rachel because she was convinced that she was Jacob's favorite. And so to this man and to these two women were born 12 sons and one daughter. That's what we, the 12 sons are what we come to know as the nation of Israel. When we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, it's the 12 sons of Jacob and the, and the land that they had all inherited and received. So it's a little bit confusing how, how does it happen because if you read down the list... You see these two guys named Ephraim and Manasseh that aren't a part of the 12 kids, but one of the middle sons named Levi isn't there. Well, Levi is the one who became the father of all the Levitical priests. And so in the Bible, they had a place to live and they had holdings, but they did not get land like the other ones did. So we take out one there. Joseph is actually represented in the 12 tribes by his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So you have 12. You take out Levi and Joseph You bring in Ephraim and Manasseh, you've got the 12 tribes. So when you read the list, when you go back through the Bible, that's what's happening. That's confusing for some people, but that's the way it worked out. So Israel at this point has made it to the land God promised them. But even living in this land of promise, this land of goodness, this land of just incredible gifting that God had given them, they still chose to be a people divided. And so it's almost like there's something in us that... That is that way, if, if you go back before this, it actually was a family, almost seems like a family curse. You go back to Isaac and his sons, Jacob and Esau. And if you've ever read that passage, those two boys agreed to, to have a deception with their father. Their dad was getting old and it was time to hand down the blessing to the eldest son and the youngest son. Esau was the older, uh, Jacob was the younger Well, Jacob was apparently a good cook, and Esau came home one day, and he's starving, and he smells the stew, and he tells his brother, man, what do I have to do for that stew? I'll sell you my birthright for a bowl of that. And Jacob goes, okay. Think about what's happening here. God's plan is that the oldest son have a double portion of the birthright. And because he's hungry, he sells God's plan for his life for a bowl of stew. And so the brothers get together and they agree how they're going to pull this off. And so they together lie to death and everything changes. And so it it, all the way back, there's this heritage of deception. And sometimes that's true in families. Sometimes there's this this family history of, of sins and troubles and struggles that just never seem to be dealt with and they never go away. And in the history of the nation of Israel, that seems to be the case. So so things haven't changed all that much. One of the first things that we learn from that interaction with the brothers is that the enemy of God will always try to get you to focus on something in the moment to get you to forget about the promise of the future. What I mean by that is this. Maybe you're hungry. That was what happened to Esau. Maybe there's something you want to do that you know you shouldn't. Maybe there's something you want to see that you know you shouldn't look at. Maybe there's somewhere you want to go that you know you probably shouldn't be there. Maybe there's something you want to try, but you know you really shouldn't. See, what, what Satan wants to do is to get us to take that momentary need, that thing that's right in front of us, a want, a need, a desire, a lust, something that we think that we deserve. Because if he can get us to look on that, look at that in the moment, the chances are pretty good he can put it in front of us again, and then the yes is easier. And before you know it, we've forgotten about the long-term promise of God that we say we're living for we say that we want to we live for heaven, but it's so easy for Satan to get our eyes off of heaven and living for the things of the moment that we say that we want. Esau chose to satisfy his hunger. And in doing that, he gave away God's long-term promise for him. That's a mistake we don't want to make. How often do you choose something just once? And I'm talking about, about something that's not good for you, a sin kind of thing. You choose something in the moment thinking it's just going to be this one time. I'm just going to do it this once. Nobody's ever going to know. It's not like I'm that interested in it. And before you know it, you find yourself separating yourselves from the people who love you in order to carry on that thing that's now become a habit. How often do we make that quick slide? We separate ourselves from the people who love us, the people who might try to call us back. Before you know it, we're not going to church anymore because we figure, well, they're all going to know. And your Christian friends, maybe you only had a few, you separate from them because, well, they're just going to tell you what you're doing is wrong. And at this point, that one time is turned into all the time. And you don't want anyone to tell you that what you're doing is wrong. And before you know it, you become that next person who used to belong to a church or used to have a family or you used to be married or you used to get along great with your kids or I used to have a job. And when you look back on it, you realize it all started with that thing you were just going to do that just one time. And that's how Satan works. And this story about the brothers that, that have this, this crazy agreement to sell a birthright, it speaks to our lives so clearly because, you know, the cup of stew wasn't that big a deal. But what it represented and what it led to changed history. So the, the deception and the fighting Continues through the time of the judges of Israel and, and the tribes, all the way up in, to where we were talking about David. Finally, in David, uh, in First Samuel five, David got, manages to reunite everybody. The people all agree with him, and, and they're they're all together, one nation. And David's son Solomon, he's going to become the next king. So we're skipping through Scripture. And the Israelites, they're this fiercely independent bunch of people. They, they always they kind of like to see themselves as the better underdog. Everybody else thought that they were better than them, but they they just always believed that we were the better ones. They had a fight for our lives mindset. They saw enemies all around them. And the problem was that when you see enemies all around you, you start to look for enemies from within. And before long, you know, you might find yourself being one of those enemies from within. And that's when we begin to see the, the beginning of the end to their greatness. That same negative mindset that they have is so easy for us to have. Well, I can say that about them because I know what they said about me. I can think that about them because I'm pretty sure I know what they think about me. They're looking at me funny. I don't think what they said was very nice. And that negative mindset can take over. Well, that's what we see happening in Israel. See, David and Solomon, they both, King David, King Solomon, his son, had strong personalities. Strong enough personalities that they could unite and hold these 12 tribes together. They had these dynamic personalities in addition to some trouble, goodness knows. But they united the Jewish people around the king. And that was important because before they had their chance, King Saul had done tremendous damage to the kingdom. And so David and Solomon had to go on this rebuilding. That's why David is remembered as the great king. And finally, under Solomon's reign, they reached the the place and the prominence that they had longed for for so long. They finally became the people they thought they deserved to be, and it's this point that we begin to see direct correlations to our world, and quite honestly, specifically to the United States. And we shouldn't ignore the lessons. See, David and Solomon—they brought Israel to this place, place of political and military and economic powers. Their enemies had been defeated. They had rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And they even went about rebuilding the temple. And with the temple complete and the walls around the city, it was like a fortress. And all of the other nations knew that that Israel needed to be respected. They were the center of the world they lived in. There was this peace in the Middle East, and life was better than it had been in a long time. People were prosperous and safe. The nation of Israel had reached the top of that mountain that they had longed to be on top of for so many generations. The only problem with being on top of the mountain is there's only two places to go when you get there. One of them is down, and the other is heaven. And what happened to the nation of Israel was the people who had gotten them there began to be replaced by a generation that did not appreciate, did not understand God, did not listen or follow God, did not obey God. They took the cost that had been paid for them to get there, and they took it for granted. They took the prosperity that they were living in for granted, and pretty soon down they went. It's a lot like the story that we're watching play out in the United States. See, the most difficult thing in life isn't reaching the top. That can be a challenge. That can take most of your life. You look at professional athletes, and they'll tell you that getting to the top is hard. Staying at the top is the hardest. Because there's always somebody that wants to knock you down. There's a, there's a saying in the financial world that says the first generation works hard to earn the wealth, the second generation spends the wealth, and the third generation squanders the wealth. That's what that's the nation of Israel was living in. See, Those who had paid the price had been replaced by those who had lived this life of ease, and, and it seemed that all they had to do was to destroy what had been given them, and so they started to do that. So we've got to go back to family history a little bit. Saul. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was one of Rachel's family tribes. David, same family, was from the tribe of Judah. That was one of Leah's family tribes. So while they were still in the family, this disagreement between the two women is still playing itself out. And so when David was crowned king, it was the Benjamites, it was the followers of Saul that attacked and rebelled David. So, Second Samuel 3, 1, if you're taking notes, David is successful in squashing this rebellion. And he unites the twelve tribes yet again. It so says, that was the beginning of a long war between those who were loyal to Saul and those loyal to David. As time passed, David became stronger and stronger, while Saul's dynasty became weaker and weaker. Saul had given up living for God. And David, as king, grew stronger and stronger. So it makes sense that everybody be happy with the 12 tribes together, right? King David, great king, everything's going well. That wasn't the case. So often with families, with churches, with governments, what is contentment for one person is seen like an opportunity to exploit that situation for personal gain to others. When people are happy, they're not paying attention. And there are some personalities who will come in and try to take advantage of that. And in the case of David, it was his own son Absalom. Absalom was the one that decided he's going to draw support himself away from his father, King David. And as a result, people began to turn their allegiance from David to Absalom. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 15. He launches what amounts to being a political uh, campaign. He's lobbying. He's trying to divide the people by catching them right before they even walk into the city. He's deceitful, but he's indirect. And it works. And so what happens is King David, the Bible says in his servants, they've got to flee Jerusalem. They leave fear of their life because of Absalom's insurrection. But it turns out that that's not the only revolt that David is going to face in his life. See, David found out that you have support until the people who say they support you have their own ideas. And when they don't agree with yours, they, they decide that, well, you know what? I love you until I don't love you. I serve you until I don't serve you. Absalom was David's own son. He should have been the safest one. The people who should have been most in support of David as a leader were the ones that caused him the biggest problems. And the same can be true in families and in churches and in businesses and in government. So later on, David's son Solomon, he's king. He's got a servant named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam, for whatever reason, decides he's going to rebel against the king He's got enough people who are going to follow him. And it leads to the split of the nation of Israel that God had prophesied through this Ahijah, a prophet. See, The people had refused to follow God. They turned from God. They hadn't followed God's commands. And so the result is that you've got the split kingdom that you hear about. Ten of the tribes find themselves in the north of Israel, up near Dan, for those of you who have been there, the gate of Abraham. And two tribes down in the south, in Jerusalem. Ten tribes to the north, two to the south. Jeroboam ruled the tribes to the north. He ends up doing something crazy. He goes back to what they did in the, in the wilderness days after Egypt. He creates a calf and he says, we're going to worship the calf. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. You can worship right here. He consolidates the people by pointing them to an idol. And then Rehoboam, Solomon's son, led the tribes to the southern part of the kingdom. What happened was Jeroboam led the people away from God. And Rehoboam in Jerusalem at least tried to keep pointing them there. So in the Bible, the northern kingdom is called Israel or Ephraim and the southern kingdom is called Judah. And this whole division is disastrous because what amounts to the sins that the people are committing against God allows tells God it's time to just turn them over to their sinful desires because God lets us have what we really want. It's an important reminder that who we say we support, who we say we follow, who we vote for, those people are going to lead us somewhere. And if we're not careful who we throw our support behind, before you know it, you can find yourself worshiping a calf. If the people of Israel do it, have done it in the past, the people of America certainly can. So if we think of our churches as families, which is something we talk about a lot around here, it's because families take care of each other. Families look out for each other. They stand up for, they speak well of, they love, they care for, they take care of. But just like in the nation of Israel, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, He says, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent, I believe it, Paul says. Sadly, there are oftentimes divisions in churches because churches are full of people. And where does Satan like to do his work? He likes to do his work in the minds and with the egos of people. There's divisions because sometimes people get selfish. And we become selfish because what it says in Romans, we've traded the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. What happens? Where does dissension and disunity and splits come from? It comes from people always, every time. So James, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What's causing the quarrels and the fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that work within you? That means that we as people, we as churches, and it's high time that we as a nation, see, if we're unable to come to honest terms with the evil desires in us, what we're really thinking, what we'd really like to see happen to that person we don't like very much, if we don't come to terms with those things that are at war within us, if we're not honest about what's really in our hearts and what's really in our minds and what we're really thinking, the enemy is going to have a playground in our thoughts which will lead to disaster in our actions. We'll be deceived by the devil and we'll end up following him because his temptations draw us in. Remember that idea of just once, I'm going to try it. I'm going to just take a look. I'm going to see what that's like. All it takes is that one yes. And that's enough for Satan to draw us in to months or years or a lifetime of trouble. But see, the Bible tells us that God's Holy Spirit is a spirit of unity, not division. Why is that important? Because people are the dividers. God is the uniter all of the time. We are the ones that create disunity. God is the one who always, from before the beginning, has brought order out of chaos through his Holy Spirit. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart because David loved God and David loved people. David made some massive mistakes in his life. He sinned out loud, but his heart was good. David was committed to God. And if God can use David to be a man after his own heart and to unite people, I'm pretty sure God can use you and I to be a man and woman after his own heart and to be people of unity also. And is there really anything in America today that we need more than Christian people who bring a message of love and Jesus and unity? That's the thing that we're missing. So then the question is, who or what are you committed to? Who or what are you living for and giving your life to? Have you given your life to Jesus, who already gave his life for you? The Bible says, Jesus gave his life for you when you were still a sinner. Jesus didn't wait to give His life before you said yes. Jesus gave His life giving you the opportunity to say yes. He is the one that started it. Jesus' death on the cross is the beginning of bringing order out of the chaos that we make in our sin. Do you live to honor Jesus? Do you daily make it a habit of making decisions in an attempt to become more like Him? Do you do the things that you need to do Do you take on the habits that you need to take on to become more Christ-like? Do you approach the moments and the people in your life with Christ-like humility? Or do you go through life doing what so many people do with their sin? And that's trying to arrogantly steal the throne that Jesus sits on. Because that's what our sin is. We think that we've got a better way of doing it. That our way of living or talking or thinking or treating people is better than God's way. And we think that we belong on His throne, not Him. We become throne-stealing wannabes. It really boils down to what are you pouring your heart and your mind into? What gets your attention? Are you filling yourself with the goodness of God's Word or are you filling yourself with all the things and distractions of this world? Are you helping the people closest to you or are you competing with them? See, in Israel, when it... Came time for the split. There was no helping involved. It was all competition. And they never thought about what that was going to do in the long term. It was just that in the moment. Let's try this. So there's this, I've told you about this before, there's this Native American teaching that I have read about. I heard someone speak. I was at a national gathering and a guy got up. There's, I think, 50,000 men in, in an arena. And he talked about that we go through life, men and women, we go through life with two dogs at war within us. And apparently it's something that their culture uses as a teaching tool, has for generations. And he adapted a little bit. He said one of those dogs represents the goodness of God. And the other one represents the lies and the deceptions of the enemy of God all around us that we give root within us. And he talked about the two dogs that are constantly at war. They want to control your thoughts and your heart and your mind Your actions, your money, your affection, your attention. And he says, But what we do at the end is we always say, Well, which dog wins? That's the question, right? The dog that you feed. What are you feeding your heart and soul? The nation of Israel, too many times, had people that fed their own selfishness. If there's two dogs that really are at war inside of us, one the goodness of God and the other activity of the enemy of God, which are you feeding? are people better for your place in their lives with Jesus as our example we know how to live with and for others the question isn't is the question isn't what or how the question is will we or do we choose only to live for ourselves and only in the moment live for whatever happens to feel good right now here today and before you decide ask yourself this question How different would your life be if Jesus had chosen to live only for himself rather than to live and die for you and I? If you want an example to turn to, Jesus is our example. See, we know that Jesus is going to return one day. We live in this world. I'm convinced that there's a lot of bad stuff going on. But you know what? I think all that bad stuff is just a whole lot of noise to get us scared. The the train derailments are real. The chemical spills are real. The UFOs, I'm not so sure about that. But there's stuff going on that we can't explain. But here's the one thing that really does matter. All of that seems to line up with what the Bible talks about, the end times. What it tells us scripturally is that the heavens are getting ready for Jesus to return to earth. But are you ready for him to return? 318 times the Bible says that Jesus is coming back. We know He came here once. He was born as a baby. He lived a life. He died for our sins. God raised Him from the grave. And one of the promises is that He's going to return. And it seems to me that we are living in those last days of preparation. But are you ready for Him? Are you ready for Jesus' return? Are you living your life as one who is ready for Him to come back at any moment? And then I'll go on a step further and say, as a person of unity, are you helping others prepare? What do we say around here is that our mission is to love Jesus, love people, and then teach people to love Jesus. Because I'll guarantee you right now there's people around you in every place that you go throughout your life who do not know that they're going to heaven. So do you spend your days building your kingdom or are you helping build God's kingdom? The nation of Israel divided, and God brought together, and divided, and God brought together. And they divided themselves, and God brought them together. But what we know that when Jesus returns, when Jesus returns, what's going to follow is a day of judgment. Where what we believe and who we follow on earth suddenly will be the decision that we live with for eternity. Are you ready for Jesus' return? And are you living for him, or are you still content to just live for yourself? Let's pray. God, thank you for the lessons of Israel. They're, they're hard. They're not fun to read. They sometimes just seem like a bunch of crazy people. Families that can't get along. Brothers that fight. Kings that pick wars with each other, even though they're in the same family. And we think, wow, that, that people are just crazy back then. But God, people are crazy now. It doesn't take very long to translate it to our world. To see how, as people, we just really haven't changed very much. But God, we want to be a church full of people who are ready for you. We want to be ready for Jesus' return. We want to live in a way that, that understands what's happened in the past. And we don't want to repeat the things that were not of your will. God, we want to make the course corrections as we go. We want to bring ourselves back into line with you. And that begins with each one of us as individuals. It's not waiting for someone else to do something. God, you're waiting for each one of us. You're waiting for us to decide who Jesus is. Each one of us has to make that decision and declaration on our own. God, thank you that we know that Jesus is returning. Thank you that we know he's coming back. That's a promise of yours, that you have every intention of fulfilling. God, we look forward to that day, but until we get there, help us to be people who love Jesus, who love people, and who teach people to love Jesus. Because God, that's what you put us on earth to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Finally, here's my last thought for you before we go. You've got the opportunity to live your life and to use your words in the relationships that you have to do two things. You can either use your words and the things that you do to be dividing words, or you can use them to be uniting words. Dividing words are easy because you throw them out there. You don't really have to stick around to see what happens with them. But uniting words, see, those are fun because then we're responsible for them when we get to have follow-up conversations. Uniting words, what we want to do as Christians is unite people with Jesus as their Savior. And that might sound like a scary thing, but it's maybe as simple as wearing an open door hat. By the way, short commercial. We've got them for sale. You were asking last week. Got them for sale outside the the door. If 70% of the people that you know or more don't know Jesus as their Savior and don't have a church home, what a great opportunity to have uniting conversations with them. Challenge you this week and the days ahead. Think about how it is that you can have a conversation with someone who you care about or maybe that you don't even know with the intention of Uniting them in a relationship with Jesus.